Alright, welcome back pool fans from across the country and around the world. You are listening to American Billiard Radio. Today is, uh, let's see, August the 4th, 2016, and my name is Mr. Bond. I'll be your host once again this week, and I'm going to be joined by the man Freddie Agnier, or a.k.a. Corner Man, out on the West Coast. How you doing, Freddie? I'm doing fantastic, Mr. Bond. Awesome, awesome. How's the weather out there? Like 100 bazillion degrees? Well, I'm in sunny San Diego, so it's a perfect temperature. It's about 78, I believe. Ooh, nice. Very nice. I envy that. San Diego, this, that, <laughs> that weather is awesome. Well, I mean, you could probably use a little more rain, but the weather is awesome. Well, we, we could use a little more rain, but every day uh, it's pretty much a perfect day, and it does not get old. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> I, I couldn't argue with that at all. Well, um, I guess we have to catch this week's headlines. Uh, first of all, um, uh, what's in the news? The World Nine Ball just uh, wrapped up out in, uh, was that Doha? In, in Qatar, yeah. In Qatar. And congratulations absolutely goes out to Mr. Alvin Ocean and uh, Shane Van Boning for taking the top two honors there. Um, I looked at that field and, uh, wow, you know. There's a monster field. Holy moly. I don't know. Uh, Alvin played fantastic pool. Uh, he looked very, very solid all the way through. I caught the uh, I caught the last uh, match, the final match this morning at, uh, what was it, 5 a.m. to 7 a.m. or something like that. Yeah. Uh, my time out here on the West Coast is just a fantastic pool. Yeah, absolutely. It's a great event. I You know, it's... I don't want to stir the mud, but, you know, there's this thing with them and video coverage that's kind of strange, you know, why they would uh, do such a high-profile event and then not provide better coverage. Am, am I being critical, Freddie? I mean, is that bad? Well, uh, they had coverage. Uh, I'm not sure why they didn't have the same type of coverage as, as uh, last year, but there was a streaming video that, um, you know, it was in Arabic, and then the finals, they actually had it on live on Facebook. So oh, well, now there absolutely was coverage. Was that Darren though that was doing that, or was that the the tournament people? Uh, I'm assuming it was the tournament people because the camera was changing as if there was professional uh, okay. uh, production. It wasn't somebody's phone. Okay. No, it was. Uh, it was. It was. It looked good. Okay. I was catching comments every now and then from Darren on Facebook, and uh, I, he just made it sound like there was no video at all. So I guess maybe I got the wrong impression. Yeah, we thought that there was going to be none, and, and leading up to it, people were saying there was none. But suddenly, there was a couple of links, um, an Arabic uh, sports channel, okay. and like I said this morning, it was cool. it was on uh, live on uh, Facebook. Excellent, excellent. Well, like I said, congrats to those guys. That couldn't have been easy. And that's a taxing trip too. I mean, the you know to travel, that's got to sure. play into it. Uh, having just come off of like twenty hours, twenty four hours of travel and everything else, that's tough stuff. Well, Shane just came <laughs> from Las Vegas. Uh, he came from the CSI Nationals and the U.S. Open ten ball and eight ball championship. Yeah, and flew directly, but he got caught up in some. Uh, his flight got delayed, and he got uh, you know held over for a day, and yeah, so he just made it there in time. And it's absolutely amazing how well he did over there, playing from seven foot tables, going 
going to nine foot tables, traveling halfway across the world, getting uh, you know all kinds of mixed up and traveling, and yet still to come out up second. Right. Um, right. Yeah, a phenomenal tournament, phenomenal couple of weeks for Shane Van Bonen. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, I mean, in theory, we should not expect anything less. So, in other words, <laughs> you know, he didn't disappoint despite uh, what was going on. Did you hear about? Uh, I guess there was a plane crash. And so the flights leaving were all being delayed or diverted. And right. um, I, Mark Cantrell was telling me, I think he was talking about Jason Shaw, maybe. Um, mm. Got diverted from like New York to like Albania or something. It was a, it was, <laughs> it was a ridiculous, they were, they were paying for it because, you know, obviously it wasn't, his fault that there was a plane crash on the air at the airport there, but uh, mm, it was right. kind of like the reverse of that all that whole rigmarole you've got to do to get there, except for you know twice. But ugh. I don't know; it's not something I envy. I'll tell you that much. That's a, that's a hard way to make a living, man. That's for sure. Right. Well, and I, and while we're talking about pool, um, I'll mention real quick that um, well. Crashing in the studio. Uh, there is, let's see, what's coming up is the U.S. Op- or the uh, Bar Table, U.S. Bar Table Championship is. And yeah, that's in the end of the month. Yep. In, coming in, up. It's in Las Vegas this year. Yep. The Bar Box Championship, August 22nd through the 28th. And uh, then, kind of like right on the heels of that, um, Mr. Zuglin's Turning Stone event is going to be okay. uh, the 25th through the 28th. So um, there's a little bit of overlap, but I don't think that the the same groups of people are going to be too worried about it. But uh, so we also have the APA uh, World Championships next week in Las Vegas. Oh, really? Okay, I know that they just yeah. didn't they so- just complete their junior stuff just this past week, wasn't it? Uh, they had a junior event. Somewhere. <laughs> I think I think it was two weeks ago they yeah. just finished up their junior two nationals. But yeah, okay, sorry. Go ahead. No. So, so there's been a lot of pool happening here in the summer, and usually summer is, you know, when I was growing up, summer was not a pool and billiard uh, season. No. Um, usually when I was So it's amazing how many events now are right smack dab the middle of the dog days of summer, get you inside the uh, yeah. Las Vegas cool uh, and AC and uh, play some national and world championships. Yes, yes. No, it is amazing. And the the best part about it, Freddie, is that the summer is filled with junior events. That's the that's the good part too. We got um, some some strong movement, strong movement in the junior uh, department. Like there is sure so much going on that it's it's almost scary. <laughs> it really is how how fast things are are growing, so uh, that's good stuff to look so forward to. Let me to. talk about that. Yeah, at, at the uh, at the CSI uh, National Championship last week, um, in the ladies' division, uh, ladies' eight ball platinum, the winner was Taylor Hansen, who is seventeen years old. That's right. She beat Vivian Villarreal as a, to get the national championship. That's awesome. Uh, she and her brother actually won. The um, the platinum Scotch doubles and her brother's thirteen years old, so a seventeen and thirteen year old. It's not like it wasn't a junior championship. This was the right. open uh, platinum division. And um, in the in the ten ball event, 
I believe yes, the 10 ball event for the what we'll call the, the very top 10 ball challenge event. It was won by Manny Perez from uh, Kansas City, Kansas. Manny must be 19 years old, and he's like a four-time VNEA junior champion. Right. He's just coming off of being really he's still a teenager, I think. Yeah. So talk about pool and junior oh, yeah. pool and, and, uh, and, and how we're going forward in the United States for a pool. It just looks, you know, it looks great for us right now. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. There, I mean, I can just – this is what's astounding to me, Freddie, because about – shoot, I don't know. Less than 10 years ago. If you asked me to name more than two or three players under the age of 20 that I thought, you know, really could hold their own against adult players, you know, there was only a couple of them. Um, and And I'm not saying that, you know, we have crops of world beaters per se. What I'm saying is now I can tell you the name of 20 or 30 junior players that are strong and that are coming up and that have are taking these junior titles again and again and again so strong crop i'm telling you these are the names that you're going to be hearing for the next 10 or 15 years these are the ones that we're going to be listening to so i am happy about that that's good stuff buddy you were out at uh, the u.s open uh eight ball competition and the u well let me let me start that sentence over again csi just wrapped up their bcapl nationals and the u.s open yep. eight ball and the u.s open 10 ball out in vegas at the That's right. rio all sweets and you were there freddie oh. was there on the scene doing the commentating mingling rubbing elbows with the stars <laughs> how was your, <laughs> how was your uh your trip to vegas fred well it was really excellent um it, you know by commentating uh, for the 11 days that i was there 11 days is a grind in las vegas it's the longest amount of time I've spent in Las Vegas straight um, straight through, 11 days. And because I had something to do every day, I sort of made it uh, made the whole 11 days without losing too much money in the casinos, mm-hmm. even though they still got it. They still uh, reached into my wallet, but not, not so badly. But yeah. I had a great time. I was with uh, Jay Helfert, uh, who I've worked with before, sure. and uh, George Teachea, who's done a lot of work down in the Arizona for uh, Billiard Commentary. And, you know, the whole field was just excellent. It was small table uh, tournaments for the U.S. 8-ball and, and a small table, diamond table for the uh, U.S. 10-ball as well. And for, for those people out there who just don't think of a 7-foot tables as real pool, if they don't think about it, they think about it as, uh, as toy tables, they miss some great, great action. I mean, we're talking about the best players in the world yeah. making 7-foot tables a real challenge, especially when it's tied up with 8-ball. And 10-ball gets kind of tied up, too. Yeah. They had the 9-ball. They had a 9-ball challenge as well. And uh, they do. The professionals do make it look awfully easy. But let's take a look at the World 9-ball championship that just happened. Albin Ushan definitely made that table look easy. Yeah. He did, though. He did. It, it, you couldn't. You wouldn't have been able to tell. He just, you know, right. walk, he walked all over it. It wouldn't have mattered what size of tail. Right. <laughs> it wouldn't have mattered what size of it. But, uh, yeah, U.S. Open 10-ball and 8-ball, Shane Van Boning double-dipped it and both, won both tournaments. So Yeah. And then he had also had a, uh, some challenge match with Torsten Homan, race to 21, 8-ball, and uh, he won 11-10, to 10, nail-biter, hill-hill. Torsten came up dry in the break on his last break. It was the only break that Torsten came up dry, and, and that's what uh, – that's what Shane needed to, yeah. to win it by one. That was it, man. 
<coughs> excuse me, that was fantastic pool too. I mean, it really was. That was some really good action there too. I, I can't believe Torsten got knocked out as early as he did, but hey, you know, it happens. It's one of those things. Right. <laughs> even the you know even the the monsters can fall sometimes, but definitely props. Huh. Shane's just getting you know championship belts after championship belts after championship belts. He should just run for president, no. I think. <laughs> Another interesting thing about the uh, small table events is to, for us to be able to see some of these guys, especially out of the Midwest, these Midwest seven-foot table monsters that you just don't see. You hear about it, but then you got to see them on the, on the stream, and that was pretty exciting. Sure. world. Yeah. Well, I like the fact that uh, you've got so much, so many levels of pool going on at the same event. You know that I think is oh, yeah. a great thing for exposure. Um, I, I mean, from one person to the the next, not necessarily you know the public interaction, but uh, the the average league players get to see it being done at a high level, and that's valuable. You know what I mean? That's not something that they, they get to see at their local league and, and the bar. So. It's a great. Right. It's a great opportunity. There were a lot of events. I mean, there were a lot of tournaments uh, at this event. There was something like I don't know, fifteen or so divisions. There was there's too many for me to count to tell you the truth. Yeah. Um, we, we we did the Fargo race this year, so they had the different divisions for you know a gold and a silver and a platinum division for open. Well, I guess today they're calling it mixed because both men and women are allowed to play in it, no problem. Right. Uh, and then there's the separate ladies' uh, events, of course. But then their partners, and then, then the teams come in. So I'm not sure how many people came in, but if you take a look at the whole list, there seemed to be 15 or 20 different national championships going on. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's insane. And that's – I mean, it, it's – first of all, it's awesome that to, to see that many pool players, that many people that love the same thing congregating – and it's fantastic that CSI has the means and the mode to to pull the events off on that scale, you know, pretty much without very much, you know, without many hitches. There's a few here and there, but right. Can, all right. things considered, you know, if you get that many people together for anything, you're going to have a few hitches there and there. But <laughs> but they really do an amazing job, I guess, is the point. You know what I mean? That's uh, something right. that, uh, that takes. Um, years of experience to be able to manage properly so props to csi for providing the opportunities for all these all these people to do that there's a whole yeah, lot of people. you know mark griffin and uh and ozzy reynolds are, are doing a great job yeah well they are and i they love what they do and i think that's why they work so hard at it you know what i mean i don't somebody else that doesn't like pool i don't know if they would care enough to, to mess with it you know what i mean <laughs> <laughs> It's a lot of pains in the butts involved there. Well, cool. Um, are you see yourself having a, a career in commentating there, Fred, or what? Well, I think that it would be a great, uh, you know, like my retirement. So when I retire <laughs> from my my main job, I can I can do this. Um, but yeah, r- reality is it it would be a labor of love, and, sure. and I'm I'm happy to do it. You know, it's a. Uh, I enjoy being in front of the microphone. I mean, I enjoy being in front of great players and great pool. And I, I enjoy talking. So, um, you know, it, <laughs> yeah. it, it would fit. <laughs> it's a good fit, right? Exactly. It's a great fit. If you like to watch pool and you like to talk, there you go. What a, you know, that's fantastic. 
Well, and, and let me give a shout out to the streaming guys. Sure. Uh, you know, it, it, they did a fantastic job. Um, probably one of the most professional productions I've been a part of. Uh, of course, I've never done anything for ESPN, and uh, I only did one thing for AccuStats. And you know, with my apologies to Pat, um, this event <laughs> felt like almost felt like um, you know it, you could see the future with it. There was a real producer, uh, Vincent Rocco, was doing the production, and he was doing just an amazing job. And his camera crew uh, were, were just on the ball, you know. So one of the commentators was saying, "If we could just see down the line here, if this ball went." I mean, they had two roving cameras always there, and Vincent was able to do the production switchover, and it felt very, um, very professional. Awesome. Uh, you know, you've been uh, involved with these things before where sometimes you kind of goof around, and it feels more like we're having fun and games out there while providing a stream. This wasn't like that. This was right. definitely a, uh, you know, a really classy, professional type of stream, and it'll only get better. And, and, and if we keep on providing this kind of product, um, it can only get better, and hopefully more viewership uh, right. from outside the world will take a look. That's absolutely true, Fred. That, and, and I want to tell you, I have been on this soapbox so many times I can't even you know count them all, but there is a distinct um, difference in the, in the public, in the viewer's eye. The production value means everything. It means everything, everything, everything. You know, when they, people talk about the, the restaurant business and they say location, location. If you're putting anything on video, the production quality, production quality, production quality. That's the only way to convince right. anybody that you're serious. If, you, if, Like you said, if you're doing this sort of, you know, I'll put my camera on there. Haha, it's me and Bob. And look, there's a game going on. They're, not only are the viewers, I mean, they'll, they'll get to watch the players. But as a company, you know, the future of your business is not going to go well. <laughs> you know what I mean? And to the the casual uh, viewers that don't know that much about it, it's important that they see it presented well. And to the sponsors outside Correct. of the industry, it is important for them to see it presented well. To, you know, potential network, you know, producers and buyers that are looking for content. It's important for right. this to be presented well. So, like again, I'll I'll double that props. That's important in my eyes. It's very important, and and unfortunately, not everybody takes it that serious. Uh, fortunately, when CSI and like when Justin was involved and Pat Fleming, for example, the people that keep doing the high quality stuff, these are the guys that are keep resetting the bar higher and higher, and that's what we need to have happen, really. And so. It's nothing but good, you know what I mean? That's great. Right. Great news that they're uh, spending the time and effort to do that the right way, like it should be done. That's that's outstanding stuff. Sorry, I didn't mean to ramble on about it, but it, it's, one no. of those, it's one of those things I feel strongly about. I, I'm it, the. It's just hardly worth it to do it unless you're going to do it well. So maybe I'll just leave it at that. You know? that's, that's what I think, too. You know what I mean? It's better for everybody yeah. if, if you just do it the right way. So, you know, yeah. Anyway, speaking of doing it the right way, I don't want to put people to sleep by doing this the wrong way. So thank you, Freddie. I appreciate your time and effort. You're welcome. And uh, anytime you need anything, just let us know. We'll catch you next week right here on American Billiard Radio. <laughs> Welcome back, everybody. This is the portion of the program where we have been 
uh, covering a book, and it is Mr. Willie Hoppy's 30 Years of Billiards. We're covering it chapter, uh, two chapters uh, per show, and we're on this week, we're on chapters 9 and 10. So we will go ahead and uh, kick that off. Chapter 9. I turn professional and meet my first real test. At length, in the year 1901, there came a time when my billiard skill had to meet a real test. Up to that time, I had been a prodigy in short pants, a smart youngster whom people came to watch more because of his diminutive size and clever antics than for serious professional skill. It was easy enough in my matches against Frank and my mother to make runs of 50 or or 100. It was easy enough to make fancy masse shots and four cushion gathers before a small town audience that sat wide-eyed and open-mouthed, waiting to be astonished and eager to applaud. It was easy to climb all over the table and make shots from all angles when there was nothing at stake. But now came the real test. Could I play sound, consistent billiards against the recognized professionals? Could I hold my own against an opponent who depended on billiards for a livelihood, for a livelihood, who was as eager to win as I was, and to whom each button on the wire meant dollars and cents? In October 1901, a few days after my 14th birthday, my father and I journeyed down from Cornwall Landing to New York City. Maurice Daly was arranging a shortstop professional tournament as a preliminary preliminary to the winter billiard season, and after a conference over handicaps, it was decided that I should enter. He needs turn, tournament experience, Mr. Daly told my father. Let's see what he can do in fast company. The other players entered were Thomas Gallagher, Ed McLaughlin, Aura Morningstar, and Jose Ortiz. The first two were widely known American professionals of the second rank, veterans of many tournaments and matches. Morningstar was a young player in his 20s who, under the tutelage of Frank Ives, had shown great promise. Those three were to play for 300 points. Ortiz was a newcomer from Spain. On the basis of his showing in the practice matches at Mr. at the practice matches, Mr. Daly rated him at 225, while I had to pe- play for 200. Two weeks of constant practice under the watchful eyes of my father and Mr. Daly put me on keen edge for the fray. We were to play 18-1, a game that permits only one shot in the restricted spaces and practically bars close manipulation near the rails. But I had learned the trick of gathering them near the lines and was confident of holding my own with any of them. Ortiz and I met in the first match of the tournament on the night of October the 21st. After the formalities, Mr. Daly's, Mr. Daly always started his affairs with a flourish. We stood at the table to bank for the break. To my astonishment, my ball rode, rolled back from the lower rail 
at a snail's pace and stopped just above the spot. I had lost the bank by about 18 inches, and Ortiz had the first shot. As I went to my seat, I wondered why I had failed so miserably to gauge the the speed of the table, and I looked towards my father, expecting to receive a stern reproof. But he had lighted a cigar and settled himself comfortably in his seat. My mother gave me a reassuring smile. Ortiz missed the opening shot and left me fairly easy. I gathered six on my first turn at the table and left them scattered. After several innings of jockeying, during which neither of us neither of us could get the balls under control, I launched on my first run with the 15 and the 7th and came back with 26 and the 8th. Ortiz seemed nervous, and his uncertainty gave me confidence. Toward the end of the game, I was shooting with my old-time assurance, and a 44 in the 13th inning put the game safely on ice. Here's the score of my first tournament match. Hoppy, total 200, high runs, 44 and 26, 25, averaging 6. Ortiz, total 101, high runs 13, average 3. The referee of that match was Mark Muldauer, the amateur who has competed in a number of Class A tournaments and still ranks high in the Metropolitan District. My next opponent was Tom Gallagher, the veteran. He tried safety tactics, and whenever he missed the balls, they were widely separated. But I was fortunate enough to get in several good runs, and my average against him was even better than in the first game. Gallagher had made only 125 of his 300 points while I was scoring 200. I had a high run of 54, while his best was 42. I averaged 7 to his 4. To make a long story short, I went through all my tournament. I went through the tournament without losing a game, beating all my opponents better than expect except better than even except McLaughlin who made 295 of his 300 before I scored my 200th. Toward the close of the game, McLaughlin got the balls rolling nicely and scored 148 points in three innings and one high run of 89. But my early lead was too much for him, and I ran out when he only needed five. The 300 which I won as first prize came in very handily, but as I look back now upon that first test of my game, the most valuable thing I gained was confidence. I had been able to hold a steady cue against some of the best billiardists in the game, and that meant a great deal to me. When the tournament was finished, Mr. Daly said, Well, Willie, you've done pretty well. Now I'm going to match you against a famous Frenchman who has come over for the World's Championship. And a few days later, the papers carried the announcement of a special match between Willie Hoppy, the boy wonder, and Louis Baratel. That concludes chapter 9, and uh, we're going to go on to chapter 10. Chapter 10, Matches with Baratel, A Trip to New Orleans. It is the winter of 1901-1902. 
I have arrived at the age of 14. Back in Cornwall, my schoolmates are studying Latin and algebra, helping with the chores at home, playing hockey and hooky, building snow forts in the schoolyard, adventuring out on the river ice, hunting rabbits on the old farm. But those boys' pastimes are not for me. I am in another world. Here I sit in Daly's Billiard Academy. The roar of Broadway comes faintly through the window, but I don't hear it. My ears are tuned to the click of ivory balls. My father sits near me, and around the billiard table is a fringe of spectators, with Maurice Daly hovering in the background. Through a blue mist of cigar smoke, I am watching a distinguished gentleman with a pointed black beard and curled mustache. He is flourishing a billiard cue. He shoots. I watch the ball spin back and in a graceful curve glide off the cushion to the second object ball. The balls are close together. Monsieur Barutel, for the gentleman with the black beard is none other, lifts his cue for a masse. He makes a tripod with the fingers of his left hand. The cue rises and falls a half a dozen times in a quick preliminary flourish as he takes aim. Then with a crunch, the Q-tip bites sharply into the ivory. The ball darts away and suddenly circles back, completing the carom on the two object balls with niceness and precision. Presently, Monsieur Barutel misses. He sits down, murmuring some phrases in French. I do not understand the words, but from the shrug of his shoulders and his general demeanor, I gather that the balls are possessed of devils, and that there is a conspiracy in the highest heavens against one Mr. Barutel. I go to the table and chalk my cue. With a cushioned carom and a draw shot or two, I gather the balls near the lower rail. My father looks on approvingly. Maurice Daly wags his head in a gesture of encouragement, and so I continue with youthful assurance. Such are my random impressions of the two matches with Louis Barutel played in the winter of my fourteenth year. That winter was important in my billiard education in other respects, for in December all the great billiard players of the country gathered at Madison Square Garden for a world championship at 18-1 and I was permitted to watch all the games from a ringside seat. Six experts were entered in the tournament. Jacob Schaefer, the Wizard, Aura Morningstar, Leonard Howison, George F. Slauson, Barutel, and George Sutton. Schaefer finished first, winning five straight matches with a grand average of 7.78 and a high run of 68. Sutton's grand average was 9.26, but he finished only fourth. That inconsistency illustrates one of the vagaries of billiards. A good match player may win all his matches, like Schaefer did, and yet fall below others in the grand average figures. 
Sitting at the edge of the table through every game of the tournament, I was also able to study the styles of different the styles of the different players and watch the various methods they employ. I don't suppose I stopped to analyze these methods or results, but I learned a great deal just by sitting there and absorbing, like a young sponge, all the billiards in the vicinity. Whenever the wizard raised his cue for a masse, my arm went up in imagination, too, and I played the shot mentally along with him. Whenever Sutton gathered the balls in a close nursing position in the center panel and edged his cue, cue ball softly back and forth, my right wrist twitched, for I was nursing them too. When the tournament was finished, my father made preparations to take me on the road again. This time we headed south. Parson Davies of New Orleans a well-known sporting character who ran a billiard room, had seen me play at Daly's earlier in the winter, and he made my father an offer of $100 a week and railroad fare if he would journey down to New Orleans. We reached New Orleans in January 1902. The racing season was at its height, and the old southern city was filled with gamblers, bookmakers, camp followers of the pony. Davies' establishment was the sporting headquarters, and every evening the racetrack crowd would come back from Jefferson Park to try their luck at the card table, and incidentally to watch me play billiards. Mr. Davies had a great idea. When we arrived in New Orleans, I found he had built a little wooden platform around the billiard table for me to stand on. I found this a great help in reaching awkward shots in the middle of the table, but it was hard on my opponents. They had to take their stance with one foot on the floor and one foot on the platform, and their balance, consequently, was anything but secure. I played exhibition matches for two weeks in New Orleans, and and when we were ready to start on tour again, my father engaged an advanced agent to go ahead and secure bookings and take care of the publicity. He was an old fellow by the name of Lucky. His first stop was Memphis. When we arrived there, my father met him at the hotel to discuss the arrangements he had made. They talked about the price of tickets, the advance sale, and other details, and my father asked him if the exhibition had been well advertised. Certainly, said Mr. Lucky, of course. You've been to all the newspaper offices. Well, no, said Mr. Lucky. I didn't think it was necessary. What? said my father in astonishment. Then how in the world have you advertised the exhibition? Mr. Lucky explained that he had spent a great deal of time around billiards and the billiard room and the hotel lobby telling everybody he met about the boy wonder who was to play in Memphis and they've all promised to come he assured well that was the end of Mr. Lucky (laughs) we shipped him back to New Orleans and fared on northward to St. Louis that concludes chapter 10 
isn't that fantastic? All right, guys, thanks for joining us, and come back and uh, visit us next week, and we'll get on to the next two chapters right here on American Billiard Radio.